0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to ClickBang. If you are listening to this on YouTube, this is very likely the first episode of ClickBang you've ever heard. ClickBang is a podcast I've been doing for the last six years on SoundCloud and iTunes. And after I posted the video on Antifa, uh, I got pretty, qu- pretty popular very quickly, and I picked up a bunch of subscribers. So I might as well, I figure, post this on YouTube as well. So whether you're listening on YouTube, SoundCloud, or iTunes, welcome. This podcast episode is titled The Death of the Left, A Pre-Mortem Autopsy. I want to make something clear before I start. This is not a celebration. In fact, this is something that deeply saddens me. I identify very strongly with a lot of what the left believes in and stands for, or should I say, used to stand for. The fact that the left is headed towards a cataclysmic crash is not a cause for celebration. The left and the right are both kind of on point about half the time. You might identify, if now if you identify as being right wing, you think the right is correct more often and the opposite for the left. But there are good ideas on both sides. And the problem with the left having a huge collapse is that a lot of the ideas that they have typically championed for decades, for great, for, for, which led to great things for this country and you know in other countries as well, those things are not going to happen anymore, or, or at least they're going to happen a lot less frequently. That's bad, because as much as I, I, I don't identify as left or right wing, but if I had to pick a side, I, I mean, in the state that things are are in right now, there's there really is no choice. What the left is doing, and their champion causes are madness. It's insanity. So there really is no choice and that's not good. I want choice. I want a diversity of ideas and that's about to go away and it has to go away. And I'll tell you why it's because the left has to, the left has to rebuild from the ground up. And the only way that that's going to happen is if they hit rock bottom. And if you think this is rock bottom, You have not seen anything yet. When you look at the history of the Democratic Party, it took about 100 years for it to go from being where it started in the late 1800s as the pro-slavery party, the party of the KKK, the party of the Southern Democrats, the party of Jim Crow. It took about 100 years for it to get to the point where it was at its best, which was in the 1960s. This is where so much good work was done. The Democratic Party was the anti-war party. It was the pro-civil rights party. It was the party that it was the party that took women's rights seriously and achieved so much with that. This was the left at its best. So as all of these changes were being made, you know, at that or prior to that point there was already a change that was happening in universities and it kept going that way. This was a movement that was really fixated from a social perspective on equality of opportunity. What they wanted was to, for that everybody regardless of who you were, whatever color, whatever race, religion, creed, cre- whatever you were, they wanted an even playing field from a perspective of opportunity. And those goals, some took a little longer than others. Obviously, we didn't have a gay marriage until, you know, not that many years ago. But um, for most of the issues that they focused on, they got what they wanted. They did a lot of good. The progress done in, you know, outside, I should say, of the ivory tower was also reflected inside of it. So as things changed for the better for regular people in America, the things changed changed ideologically for universities and you started to see a shift in college professors particularly in the social sciences from being you know at one point i'm sure it was 50 50 between ideas of right-wing and left-wing ideas to in the 1960s where you're probably at 60 going to 70 percent and then that continued more and more up to the point where it was almost exclusively left-wing for the social sciences when you enter the 1990s. This is where things get really, really hairy really quickly because now you've got a situation where pretty much everyone in the social sciences programs are left-wing. Now you kind of have like an internal purge happening in universities where it's not good enough just to be liberal or even to be progressive. It gets to the point where the only way you're getting into a position and getting tenured is if you're a bona fide cultural Marxist, that's where we are today. This is literally 100% of all college professors in universities and social science programs, they are all cultural Marxists. There is no room and there is no diversity of ideas anywhere in higher education in this country anymore. So forget about having any kind of identification with the right and going into a, a getting a professor, a job as a professor in a university. No, you can't even be a centrist. You can't even, you can't be a moderate. You have to be a far left-wing ideologue. That's the only way you're going to get a job. That's the only way you're going to get tenure. And everybody knows it, which is why everyone else doesn't even bother. They just move on, go on with it. They don't try for a career in higher education anymore. And we've gone from the point where in the nineties, it was an echo chamber and now it's a vacuum. Now, literally, like every professor is just about the same. It's just you know how many inches to the left or right of marks are you? That's it. That's all there is. There is no diversity of opinion. It is an indoctrination chamber. That is why kids that are majoring in these social sciences are coming out radicalized. They're 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 leaving they're leaving college with a view of the world that is so different from what they are taught, that they have no way to cope with it. It is, at this point, an epidemic. This phenomenon of where our university system is today is not the only reason why the left is going to die. It also has to do with the media, and the media and universities are related. First of all, people who go into college looking for a career in journalism or entertainment or broadcasting or whatever, they are these are people who are well they're they're basically looking to get the education in the field that they want to go into and they also want to have a nice a good gpa as well so they're not going to you know so so yeah they'll take their their classes in whatever field they're interested in but they're not going to pick up other classes in math or physics or chemistry no they want to pick up some extra gpa points you're not going to do it by taking organic chemistry you're going to do it by taking philosophy and sociology it's just easier it's a fact some of these students are just sitting in the classes to get the easy a and don't pay too much attention of it, to it but most don't most most are drinking the Kool-Aid at least they are today so let's look at news and, and entertainment now you have all of these kids going out and getting jobs in news and entertainment let's let's look at news first so you have these journalists who have this heavy leaning this 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 heavy indoctrination i should say of social justice and cultural marxism in the in the universities and they're going out and they are being journalists and broadcasters and as you can see in the mainstream media at least you have a, a, a drastic drastic slant to the left basically for mainstream media it's everybody is far left and then there's fox there is a little bit more wiggle room in newspapers because young people don't really use, don't really read newspapers Um, And then you have more of a free market in alternative media like YouTube and social media. But as far as what, when you turn on your television, it's either Fox or far left. And that's not a great situation. That's why there is so much less influence from mainstream media. It's just, it's it's basically an echo chamber. It's even more drastic when you look at entertainment. Like take, for example, Hollywood. Hollywood loves to make political messages these days. You see it in almost every movie. There is some there is some virtue signaling. There is some social justice in every movie. The more it is, the less popular that movie will be or the entertainment will be, whether it be a Netflix show or, or whatever, but it doesn't matter. These people who are in charge of doing it, they're not looking at Nielsen. They're not looking at their ratings and they're not looking at the box office receipts. They're looking at their Twitter account. This is how this is. And the, the people on the left have a are way crankier and have a and whine and kick and scream way more. So all these kids getting out of college who are just at this point consumers or, or you know, and then you have all of the people in the news who are already pretty heavily to the left. And you have the people who are consuming the most media who are far left wing ideologues. And then you have the media, which is pretty far left, not quite as far, but they've, they've, you know, they're pretty far to the left already. And the number one consumers of media are kicking and screaming and throwing a tantrum for their news and entertainment to be way further to the left. And the media has blodged. Certainly, certainly Hollywood has capitulated almost completely. And the news has also, at least as far as mainstream news is concerned. This has created a feedback loop, and I see no way of this ever stopping. You have year after year, kids becoming more and more radically left-wing, coming out of school, the biggest consumers of media, the most important demographic, and then the media giving them what they want, basically, at least that's what they hear, and it just keeps moving further and further to the left. Combine this with the fact that we just had eight years of Barack Obama as president, who was a champion of social justice, also a very persuasive guy. I think the left kind of didn't notice somehow that despite the fact that Obama was and continues to be really popular, uh, I think they just kind of liked him as the guy because he's like, you know, handsome, great talker, persuasive, just seems like a great guy, right, when you listen to him, when you see him. But it didn't work as well for the men and women who are running for Congress or Senate or governor. Over time, I mean, the, the party just hemorrhaged. And I don't think the party really noticed, or I don't think most people noticed, or maybe both, because they just looked up on the TV and there's there's Barack Obama, our first black president. Cool dude. And now, leading up to the 2016 election, you have literally the perfect storm. You have everybody coming out of college being far left, the media going further and further left every day the entertainment industry, any any show that's entertainment is going to be super, super far left. And nobody was in love with Hillary, but she was definitely parroting the social justice talking points. And that was kind of good enough, it, it good, good enough to satisfy the media, right? Good enough to satisfy entertainment. This is why that running in, you know, heading into the election, that any anyone credible in polling or anything or... or political science, or anything like that, anyone who seemed to be credible credible, who had an education in this sort of thing, or was an expert in this sort of thing, saw a Hillary Clinton landslide. They all predicted the same thing. Anyone who said anything out, even Nate Silver, like I think Nate Silver kind of put it at 70-30, somewhere like that, 70% that Hillary was going to win, 30% Trump. He was he ate so much shit for that. They said, "How dare you? How could you say that he has a 30% chance?" No. He, that, people that, people didn't want to read those articles. No, people clicked on the Huffington Post article that said Hillary had a 98% chance of winning, right? There was no other there was no room, any voice on the left and this and to my to my surprise, it's continued worse since then. But like anyone who had any kind of criticism, any kind of an outside opinion, who is from the left, was shunned and mocked. Everywhere you looked, there was only one thing you could see. It was, we have Obama, he's the most social justice president we've ever had. We have Hillary, okay, we don't love her, but she's definitely saying all the right things. And everyone in Hollywood, media, TV shows, and 90% of them news saying, this is the right thing to do, literally, anyone with any kind of influence said the only possible rational choice and the only possible outcome is Hillary. What everyone else forgot to do was to ask the people who don't have a voice what they were going to do. Now, you might say, well, that's going to be the polls, but here's the problem. Anyone who would say any kind of criticism of Hillary, or anyone who would, you know, say anything that they liked about Trump, like saying that out loud in public, you got shunned. You got called a racist. You got called what used to be the worst thing you could be called—a racist, a misogynist, a xenophobe, whatever. If you liked anything that he had to say, or didn't like anything that Hillary had had to say from a social justice perspective, you were shunned. So, is it any surprise? that when somebody's sticking a microphone in, some, in front of somebody's face or somebody's calling them at home and saying, who are you going to vote for? You know, the people, they're just going to be like, fuck, you! who do you think's asking? It's the media. They're either going to hang up or lie. And that's exactly what happened. And of course, we all know what happened. Trump won and the rest of, you know, the governor's seats, House of Representatives, it was, we've all, we've all seen the maps, right? It's just a swath of red all over the country with little pockets of blue on the coasts. It's no surprise and it's no coincidence that those pockets of blue are where the media lives. The media all lives in New York city and in California, like virtually a hundred percent local news and stuff doesn't count. Anyone who's producing entertainment, anyone who's producing mainstream nationwide news is in those two places. Now here's where things get very interesting. You would think that after this situation where you are so, you've never been sure of anything in your life, definitely a whole lot more sure that Hillary's gonna beat Trump than Obama was gonna beat Romney. At least there was a question there, right? No, there was no question. She is in the right. She's saying all the right things. There's no way that he could win. And it's because we're right. Social justice is the way to go. Identity politics, yeah, let's do it. There's no way that Trump can win. And not only did he win, everyone else won too. All the other, Not all the other Republicans, but you know what the map looks like. It's a bloodbath. After that, you would think that there would be some kind of self-reflection on the left. But the exact opposite has happened. The left got way, way more radicalized, particularly in media. And that's because when you have been saying the same thing for two years that we have to win and of course we're going to win and we're going to win because we're on the right, we're we're on the right side of history and you think that your ideas are correct and popular and why else would you not think that? Everyone you know, keep in mind these are people in media, everyone that you know is saying the same exact thing because anyone who says something different gets booted out and never works again. So you have the perfect echo chamber, then After they lose, you would think they say, well, maybe we're wrong. No, just the opposite. Why did Trump win? Because he had ideas that resonated with people who weren't doing so well? No. He won because of racism. Even to this day, we're into into the beginning of May and Hillary still thinks she lost because of racism or the Russians, whatever. No, it's nothing that she did wrong. Did the Russians tell her? Did they hack her calendar so that she didn't stop in Wisconsin once? No. Because they had a tin ear to the people who were hurting. And the people that were hurting noticed. Now, people are put in a position where they have to basically do one of two things. Number one, either admit that they're wrong, and there's something wrong with these ideas that have been churning for the last eight years, Or two, say no and triple down on them. And that's exactly what's happened. People hate to think that they're wrong. They hate to change their worldview. It's extremely uncomfortable. So we've had this cognitive dissonance cluster bomb that dropped in November. There have been some voices on the left who have tried to get a, you know, who have tried to use their influence, tried to say, hey, maybe it's us. Maybe it's something. Maybe there's something that we believe in that's just not jiving with America, and those people just they're on YouTube now. So what happens when you have a situation where you have the left in a certain way up until late up until November of 2016, and now after a crushing defeat, has become even more shifted, even way further to the left, to the point where I mean it's just it's it's literally insanity. They are clutching on to every conspiracy theory just to do anything to hurt Trump because literally that's the left's message, that the whole message of the left is Trump is bad, Trump is Hitler. Well, they tried that for a while, and that's petered out. Trump is crazy. Trump is incompetent. That's that's the entire message of the left, and that's not going to work. See, here's the thing. The only thing that's going to work for the left is if Trump does badly. That's literally, or not that Trump does badly, but that the country gets worse. That is what they're banking on. What if the country gets, what if there are more jobs? What if the economy continues to get better? What if this stuff actually works that he's doing, right? I know a lot of you think that it won't, but suspend disbelief just for a second and know that a lot of, a lot of things. A lot of times, the economy doesn't really have that much to do with who's president. Yes, it definitely has an effect, but like the economy might have just been trending to go in a better way. Either way, right? Maybe it's not all because of him. Whatever you need to do to put yourself in a situation where you have to think that in 2017, going into into the 2018 midterms, and 2019, going into the 2020 election. Here's the thing. If your whole message on the left is that Donald Trump is the devil and people are better off, what do you think is going to happen? Keep in mind, the same same people in all the important areas of the country who voted overwhelmingly for Obama flipped to voting overwhelmingly for Trump. New York doesn't matter. New York's always going to be blue. California, always going to be blue. What we just learned that Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, they're not always going to, no. It's always going to be a toss-up. And it's going to come down to are things any better? And if your message is Donald Trump is the devil and these people are doing better than two and four years from now, you're going to lose everything. You have nothing. Because if you think about it this way, You tell me right now, what is the message of the left? There is none. It's nothing. It's just fuck Trump. That is the entire message. This is all the fault of social justice, which is one of the biggest long cons that has ever happened, and the left has suffered mightily from it. You see, when we go back into the 60s, when people on the left were fighting for equality of opportunity. Here's the thing. When you fight for something, you do it the right way, you do a good job and you get results. There's a small problem with that. After you solve the vast majority of the problems and you really do have equality of opportunity, especially legally, what do you do next? It's like, what's, what's the next move here? Okay every you know black people are at, legally at least have the same rights as as white people in this country yes we still have a very racist war on drugs but otherwise there everybody has the same legal rights can you name me a law or can you name me something that is happening in this country that can be solved by a law that that re- that represents racism or sexism no because all those laws have been passed so once you do that and you see if, if you're on the left, if you see, okay, we've got all these laws passed, gay people can get married, every everyone is basically on an equal uh, playing field as far as opportunity is concerned, but then you look at the outcome and the outcome is different, that's when you decide that you have to, if you're going to be in the business of fighting for what's right, at least what you think is right, then you shift from opportunity because you've pretty much plateaued on that. Now you're going to start concentrating on equality of outcome. And this is where things started to go horribly wrong. To really get a good idea of where this movement of social justice, of intersectionality, of identity politics comes from, I'm going to let somebody explain it to all of us who has who was there when it started. Her name is Christina Hoff Summers. She was there from the beginnings of feminism when feminism did a lot of good work to get equal rights for women and has seen it through to the point where it is at today. Let's listen to her talk about intersectionality. This mostly applies to feminism, but it really is endemic to all of social justice. Let's hear what she has to say.
1: Suddenly, intersectionality is on the boards. New stories are turning up everywhere. Well, intersectional theory was first developed in the 1970s and 80s by a group of African-American feminist scholars and activists, They accused the women's movement of neglecting black women and of basically misunderstanding oppression. Pathologies like racism and sexism, they said, these are not separate systems. They connect. They overlap and they create a complex arrangement of advantages and burdens. So white women, for example, are penalized by gender but privileged by race. Black men suffer from their race but garner advantage from their gender. But black women are in double jeopardy. They are disadvantaged by both race and gender. Well, Patricia Hill Collins, a professor at the University of Maryland and former president of the American Sociological Association, she's one of the chief architects of intersectionality theory. The textbook she co-authored describes the United States as a matrix of oppression. And beneath this veneer of freedom and opportunity, there lies a rigid system of privilege and domination. Now, most Americans don't see it, but Collins and her co-author alert students to the fact that the true nature of their society has been hidden from them. In their words, dominant forms of knowledge have been constructed largely from the experiences of the most powerful. And the text promises to introduce students to deeper subordinated truths. That's their phrase. And they, they say they're going to avoid Western and masculine styles of thinking, which can obscure these truths. Well, according to the theory, those who are most oppressed have access to a deeper, more authentic knowledge about life and society. In short, members of privileged groups, especially white males, should not only check their privilege, but they should listen to those they have oppressed because those groups possess a superior understanding of the world. Now, initially, the primary focus of intersectional feminism was on black women, but the number of victims quickly multiplied. This graphic from a popular women's studies textbook includes 14 or 15 marginalized identities. Now, there are social scientists who use a sensible, non-politicized version of intersectionality to understand complex social identities. I have no quarrel with them. What concerns me is how intersectional feminism is taught and practiced on the college campus. I have many objections, but I'm, I'm just going to limit myself to three. Problem one, it's a conspiracy theory. I mean, if intersectionality theory were merely a reminder to be sensitive to different kinds of social advantage and disadvantage, that would be fine, but it's much more than that. It's an all-encompassing theory of human reality constructed to be immune to criticism. If you question it, that only proves you don't understand it or that you're just part of the problem. It's seeking to correct. Now, that's why articles by skeptics almost never appear in textbooks like these. Now, certain groups, men for example, are marked as sinners with a capital P. (laughs) And if they dare to question the theory, they will be told to check their privilege. Their job is to atone for their unearned advantages and to learn from those they have oppressed now some men are really taking this to heart consider this tweet as a dude who cares about feminism sometimes I want to join all men arm-in-arm arm, and then just run off a cliff and drag the whole gender into the sea <laughs> problem two: victim creep according to this theory victimization confers wisdom moral authority even prestige so in places where intersectionalists gather On campuses and social media, there's now a mad scramble for victim status. Now, I first saw this theory in action way back in 1992 at the annual meeting of the National Women's Studies Association in Austin, Texas. The conference organizers had imbibed the lessons of intersectional feminism, and they were struggling to honor all identities, so the participants were told to assemble in small groups based on their healing needs. So there were groups for Asian women, African American women, elderly women, Jewish women, disabled women, fat women. None of these groups proved stable. The fat group polarized into gay and straight factions. Members of the black lesbian group could not get along. Those who had white partners were called out for their privilege and had to form a separate group. And new identities emerged. A group of women with allergies formed a caucus and issued a set of demands about not wearing dry, cleaned clothing or hairspray. It was a conference of scholars, but we didn't resolve our differences through rational discussion. Instead, intersectionality created new reasons for anger and devoured itself. The conference ended with songs and healing rituals. Problem three, bullying. Intersectionality tells us that white males are in charge of the capitalist white supremacist patriarchy, and that they enjoy most of the unearned privilege. So on many campuses, that has given marginalized victims permission to treat them badly. Ironically, members of the insider victim class now routinely do to others what they accuse the privileged class of doing to them. They stereotype, demonize, shame, and silence people. Now, what often happens with morally inflamed groups has happened here. They've begun to turn on each other. In 2014, The Nation magazine ran a story about a conference at Barnard College for feminist bloggers. Now, the participants were immediately denounced by a Twitter mob as a cabal of white opportunists, <laughs> and even though it included several women of color, the very act of holding the conference was considered discriminatory. It privileged people who lived in New York City and excluded indigenous women, mothers, veterans, women who are not online. The Nation magazine quotes a participant who compared it to a Maoist hazing. Now such hazings are now the norm in the feminist blogosphere. Now, if you have wondered why there are so many millennials on campus telling people to check their privilege, demanding trigger warnings, calling people out for microaggressions and retreating to safe spaces, here's my theory. They're in the grips of a conspiracy theory and have succumbed to the cult of intersectionality. Now there are human rights catastrophes that bear directly on race and gender. Black male incarceration in the United States comes to mind, as does gender apartheid in many Muslim countries. But intersectional theory isn't uniting people around urgent humanitarian crises. It's dividing rather than uniting. It's leading large numbers of talented, idealistic students at highly privileged intersections of American colleges to focus on themselves and to enact psychodramas. It's turning them inward away from a world that needs them.
0: So where does this leave us? This dominance of intersectionality, social justice, identity politics which has just taken a hold of the left. They have that th- these ideologies have sunk their claws so deep in. What happens? Well, what Miss Summers was describing as victim creep is very important. These ideologies have made victim status into a currency. And this is why intersectionality, or for the remainder of this, I'm just going to refer to it as identity politics. Identity politics will always cause whoever is using it to eat themselves, to destroy themselves. And we see this because when you have victim status as a currency, there will always be a battle for whoever is talking to, To be the biggest victim, whoever's the biggest victim gets to speak first. Why do you, it's no coincidence that the left has all, but the left used to be the bastion for free speech when free speech really wasn't that free in the sixties, it was the left that corrected that now the left has totally abandoned their views on free speech. I mean it's not that bad in this country because we have the first amendment but if you look elsewhere it's illegal to say like in country, countries that are western civil western civilizations like Canada the UK Germany it's outright illegal to say anything that the government considers to be racist it's literally illegal for example in Canada they just passed a law it is illegal to criticize islam let me be clear about that it's not I'm not talking about You know, saying something racist to somebody who's Muslim. No, just to criticize, to harshly criticize Islam is a crime in Canada now. It's similar in Germany and the UK as well. The only reason it hasn't gotten to this point so far in the United States is because we have the First Amendment. But the left is all too willing to completely ignore it. We see many, it's not just Milo and Ann Coulter, all over the country. When there are conservative speakers, the left will do everything they can, including using violence to shut down these free speech, to shut down speech. There is, it is, it, they need a safe space for libertarians and conservatives, apparently, because the, the least safe space is a university campus. The problem is, well, it's, it's, it's at its core, it's a problem, obviously, but. The problem is that normal people turn on the television and they see these people dressed in black, they see Antifa dressed dressed in black, lighting things on fire, and then when they're watching the news, there's no criticism of this. Sure, if they watch Fox, there is, but otherwise, no, there's no criticism of it. They're not calling these people out by name. They're not saying that it's wrong. People notice this. When you look at feminism today, you still have a big chunk. You have like 60% of women in this country who still think that there is inequality between the sexes. However, when you ask women, are you a feminist? You have about 20% who say they are. So you have most women who think there's inequality, but only 20% who think they're a feminist. Why is that? Because they know that feminism isn't, isn't working in their interests for equality. They know that feminism has become man-hating. And they don't want to be associated with that for good reason. Another reason that people reject feminism is because somehow feminism has gotten in bed with Islam. Who saw that coming? But it works. It, it's because of identity politics. Islam has taken a, 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 a very high place on the progressive stack, which ter- determines the you know identity politics and intersectionality. So... You have the 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 ideology, literally, the, as Sam Harris puts it, the motherload of bad ideas. Who, who and that that goes for women more than anyone. Who is now, when you have a women's march, your main speaker and your emblem is a woman in a hijab, which is literally an oppressive an oppressive garment used that that's, that's forcibly put on women all over the world. You have people on television defending female genital mutilation. And of course, every other week, sometimes twice a week, you have another terrorist attack. And every time there is one, you have the left saying, no, no, this has nothing to do with Islam. No, 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 Islam is fine. Guess what? Nobody's buying that anymore. The only people buying that are people in your echo chamber, which has become a vacuum. When regular Americans see that this is a real threat, that Islam, you know, wherever it goes, wherever you get more and more of it, it's not just terrorism, it's everyday violence. People see that the only people defending this are on the left, and they want nothing to do with it. The more and more that the voters see the left clutching on to these toxic ideologies of feminism, of defending Islam, of no longer supporting free speech, of telling people to check their white privilege, when it's just a family trying to make ends meet and you know they don't have shit, but they're they're looking at this vast diversity of celebrities on television, right? Telling them you check your privilege, and they continue to do this, and they continue to to say that the the patriarchy and white males are, the, are and are the cause of everyone's problems when they're just trying to get a they're just trying to make a living, put food on the table. and it's getting worse and worse and the rhetoric is becoming more and more extreme. And this is all since the election. Yeah, it's steadily it was it's steadily ramped up over eight years. Now over the past few months, it's gone into into hyperdrive. What do you think they're gonna do when they get to the ballot box? they don't identify with anything that you're doing, with anything that you're saying. And on top of that, you don't have a message other than fuck Trump. So what's going to happen if things get better and your message stays the same and becomes more and more radicalized? Like I said, if you thought 2016 was a crash, wait for 2018 and 2020. What little left is going to be massacred. There will be no political power at all. That, re- that Nothing will remain on the left. The left continues to latch onto these things. It's not just that stuff. The left is totally pro-immigration, t- totally pro-open borders. Anyone who says anything else, they get shunned. They, get, they become an apostate. When regular people need service jobs and need factory jobs, and you're telling them, no, it's going to be good for you, if we're just going to, we're going to let anybody in, they don't like that message. When you see Bill Nye on television saying that, yeah, gender's a spectrum and yeah, kids should, kids should be able to change their, their, uh, get surgery when they're nine years old and take hormones. No, regular people don't like that. They they think that's crazy. And social justice has made its way into climate change. Good luck getting any climate change legislation passed when you, when you're saying that the, the, Glacial that, that when glaciers melt it's, it has, it affects women more than men. like social justice gets its teeth into everything that's on the left, every left wing issue, and people are just not buying it. I think um, I think a great just in terms of optics, what happened recently. there was a that White House correspondence dinner, so it's basically just a way for the press to you know jerk each other off. So Trump made the genius move of making, he just did a rally, just a regular old Trump rally. You know, you've, you've seen one, you've kind of seen them all, right? And what is the optic, what do you see when you look at a Trump rally? Well, you see Trump obviously there, but in the background and all around him, they're all just regular American people wearing blue jeans, T-shirts, baseball hats, flannel shirts, you know, blue-collar America. So that's what you see when you put on a Trump rally. And all he keeps saying is, it's all about you. It's all about you, the American people. I want to make America great again. You know, Trump might be an egomaniac, but he sure doesn't talk like it at a rally. He's always saying it's all about the American people, right? So when you have these two things on, at, at literally at the same time, and the media has to cover both, Right, So that's what people see. On the one screen, they see Trump at a rally saying it's all about America and a bunch of regular American people cheering. On the other screen, you see a bunch of Hollywood elites, celebrities in tuxedos and fancy evening gowns saying we are the best. Trump is the enemy. Everyone is racist and sexist. And to a regular voter in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, how do you think that registers? The left has abandoned their core principles and has devolved into a crucible of Freudian pathologies. I see no sign of this changing in any way. In fact, only becoming more and more and more radical. It's going to continue and it's going to get, and the results are going to be a catastrophe. The left is a dead man walking. There is nothing that can save it at this point other than a quick and rapid crash. Only when they lose everything, I think, is going to be the point where they can return to their roots, which is classical liberalism. And I'm not really looking for I don't know, what's going to happen. in between. It's just a matter of how long is it going to take them to get their shit together because we need we need for that to happen we need a a diversity of ideas on the political landscape and the way that it's going they're clutching on to the very ideas that have basically that have basically winged them to this point haven't even been winged they've been decimated and these are this is all that they have left Thanks for listening. That was part one. Just a question. I don't know. When, When should I do part two? Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Good night.